This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Now that Yemi Mobilade is the mayor-elect of Colorado Springs, he has his work cut out for him, and he promises to bring a fresh perspective to the job. He spoke with KRCC's Andrea Chalfin Wednesday afternoon. Yemi Mobilade, mayor-elect, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. How are you feeling? Has it, has it sunk in yet that you will be leading Colorado's second largest city? It's sinking in more and more. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm tired, but I'm good. And the more I wrap my head around the job, it's, it's sinking in more and more. But I'm still in shock. Don't get me wrong. And in good awe. Good awe? Good awe. <laughs> you know, um, we talked about uh, leading up to the election um, about a number of key issues that will help shape the city, attainable housing, growth, police reform, all shaped through what you describe as the importance of leadership. Um, where do you start, and what is your number one priority? My number one priority, um, June 6th, after swearing in, is to ensure that we are all on the same page with my vision and our vision, as well as establishing a good culture within city admin. There's almost 3,000 people that work in city within the city administration, and I... Uh, it's one of my top priorities to not only connect with the directors, but to ensure that I, I have some time with the staff members to convene them in, in um, groups and to com- communicate my vision as well as my culture because these 3,000 members will be representing me to the city. So I want to ensure that we're all working out of the same playbook. You know, the majority of city council supported your opponent in the election. Um, how are you planning to work with council, create unity in city government moving forward? I, I welcome that challenge and I'm up to that challenge. Unity is the name of the game. Unity is what I've been preaching, promoting, and what I've been doing in this community um, from my time as a pastor and trying to unite diverse faith traditions around to work from the same playbook, from my time even in city government to uniting government factions, to my time working with um, the school districts, um, trying to help unite 10 school districts to work from the same playbook. So I'm, I'm looking forward to putting that into, into action in the mayor's office. So yes, um, five of them endorsed my opponent. Um, the other four didn't, so that's important. So we have a good starting place. I have to say I have met with Randy Helms, um, and he is, we've both expressed strong mutual desire to work together. So I'm, I'm excited about that. In fact, he's tried to call me twice already today. And I'm meeting with another city council member today who actually um, supported my opponent. So we're, I'm already making strides towards ensuring that we are working together for our residents. And in your acceptance speech Tuesday night, you said that uh, Colorado Springs will become an inclusive, culturally rich, economically prosperous, safe, and vibrant city on a hill that shines brightly. Um, just elaborate a little bit on that. Right. Um, each, each one of those aspects are, to me, an important part of um, a quality of life. So we talk about being an inclusive city. Um, that is a, one of the strong message of my campaign, that the neighborhoods will, of our city will have a voice at the mayor's seat and the decisions that impact them and including um, members of our community that co- consistently fell on the outs. Um, inclusive also means that transitioning us from a city, from being a city for the few to the city um, for the many, not just special interests, but the interest of our residents. 
culturally rich. Um, it's one of the marks of a great city is when you welcome diverse cultures. It actually has economic development implications um, to bring in more jobs and attract more talent. And so you see those growth happening, even with upcoming events like Juneteenth that's coming up here soon and um, um, Fiestas Patrias, uh, which I was a part of last year. And so that's kind of when I say culture and rich, understanding that our city is growing and becoming more diverse and to welcome it and embrace it. We've talked about safety, being at the top of our minds. Uh, we've been economically prosperous, um, ensuring that people have access to jobs, high paying jobs, you need to live in this community. And if we do all four things well, we will be vibrant. So you're a political newcomer and a businessman, and uh, how do you think that those qualities um, will serve you or those characteristics will serve you as mayor? Yeah, um, let's talk about the political newcomer. Um, a political newcomer, um, but a seasoned city leader. Um, political new newcomer, I, I often quote Reagan's quote around the whole concept of being able to see things with fresh eyes um, because I have not, the, those lenses have not been tainted with um, any any commitments or to any groups or persons that I owe anything to. So I'd be able to look at the issues very objectively. I make decisions from a place of being very objective. So I'm looking forward to readdressing even some of the pain points from a, from fresh eyes. And then what was the other one? Being a business. Oh, yes, being a business one. That one is um, being in the arena, understanding not just hiring and creating good culture and also the ability to look into a budget and um, trim the fat and understand that we have limited resources. We, we have a lot more needs, a lot more wants, a lot more desires that we have um, money for. How can we be creative? What else can we do? How can we find solutions to the answers, to, the, to, the, to answer the needs um, that are in front of us? And so all those... All those experiences will be helpful in the mayor's office in addition to being able to pick up the phone and call other business leaders to be a part of the solution to the issues ahead of us. Uh, you are also an independent and certainly the, the mayoral election is nonpartisan, um, but it is a city that is widely established as conservative and right. Republican. What do you think your election says about sort of the here and now for the city or the future for the city? Right. I, I think the, with regard to the here and now, um, what this election says is it, it brings to, to the conversation a group that we don't often talk about. I know um, we're quick to talk about and uh, ask the questions, are you Republican or Democrat? But we're not talking. There's a, there's a group of us that no one is talking about, and we are the largest political party, the independent, 48% of us. Uh, unaffiliated. So what this election says is we matter too. <laughs> uh, we want to be a part of the conversation. I represent that group and not that we don't affiliate to any values. Um, we do. We just are not quite, we're having second thoughts about the political party machine. And so I, I am proud to bring that, to represent that group and to bring that conversation to the, to the forefront. And it's really important too that I'm also proud that I have run a campaign that is true to the, to the intent of our own local laws and um, city charter that demands that this, the election cycle is a nonpartisan election. I, I, no one is talking about the fact that we 
1979, our city charter was amendment, amended to say it's a nonpartisan election and that all candidates, we submit a sworn affidavit to city clerk that we've not been endorsed by any political party. No one is talking about why we haven't honored that. We've gone through the motions, but yeah, we're running partisan politics. See, our, our, our quality of life um, should not be t tied to just political preference and that preferences, and that's really important. You moved to Colorado Springs to start a church, and you also served as a ministry leader at First Presbyterian Church here yes. in Colorado Springs. Religion and the Republican Party are generally thought of as going hand in hand. How have you navigated uh, to separate church and politics, or, or how has that served you going into politics? COS um, I Love You is an, an organization I co-founded. And what we've successfully done is while it's, um, it unites diverse churches together, what we've done is to serve the city, no strings attached. Um, faith is an inspiration to do good for me um, and not to promote hate. The values of kindness and empathy um, and humility and courage to do the right thing. That's what faith does. And that's, the, that's part of my leadership. And so it informs how I will be leading, not so much from a looking at politics and government from a religious experience. There's place for that in our community. We need our faith communities, our faith sectors from all faith because they connect us to a higher power, but the work of government is different. But what we can draw from them from faith is the values that keep us grounded and keep us, help us, help us to be good humans and to see each other and to restore truth, beauty, and goodness in every single person. So Colorado Springs is, uh, as mentioned earlier, it's the um, second largest city in the state. No city, though, works only within its boundaries. What, what happens here also affects the rest of the state and the region. So how are you planning to work with other city and state leaders to shape Colorado? Easy. Um, I'm already doing so. On, on, um, yeah, just last night, I got a text from the mayor of Grand Junction telling me, um, congratulations, I got a text from the former mayor of um, Salida telling me congratulations. Um, the point I'm getting at is um, there's a lot to learn from other cities. In fact, I have the affordable plan, affordable housing plan from the city of Grand, Grand Junction. I'm just comparing notes. Um, I participated in a program called the Governor's Fellowship. I'm a, I'm a 2019 class of Governor's Fellows. That program um, did two things, gave me access to the governor's office and his cabinet. It has also given me access to leaders from across the state who are also having similar problems and trying to find solutions to the, to the similar problems that we are encountering. So I look forward to um, learning from others. I look forward to also sharing with them things that I've learned and working together uh, with other leaders from across the state. One big economic consideration in Colorado Springs is whether or not Space Command stays here. Right. Uh, can you comment on that ongoing effort? Absolutely. Most recently, I've I've, I've learned that um, we're making more hires. We are we're continuing to work as though it's here to stay. And I think there's wisdom in in that we the decision, the final decision, has not been made. I am proud of the many efforts that are happening from the local level to state level and federal level. Um, the big benefit of this tension around Space Command is this infrastructure from across levels of government that we now have in place 
that we can use to address other issues. We have strong communication, we have strong collaboration, and I see an opportunity to use that to solve other issues today that we will encounter. I'm talking to the current mayor about Space Command. I fully intend to fight for it to stay here and do our best, but um, more importantly, is one of the issues that is making it hard, us, harder for us to keep it here is around housing affordability. So we must address that so we don't lose other future opportunities. And that's a part of this whole Space Command crisis that keeps me up at night is our housing affordability crisis. You're the first elected black mayor of Colorado Springs. Mm -hmm. um, and you're a naturalized U.S. citizen from Nigeria and West Africa. Does any of that have any special meaning for you? Yeah, and uh, I got to be honest, I I don't think of myself in those terms. Um, I don't wake up thinking of myself. I didn't wake up today thinking, oh, yeah, you're the first black elected, elected black mayor or your first elected immigrant mayor or whatever those criteria are. Those are important. I'm going to get back to that in a second. But how I see myself is, is part of the story of the American dream, the land of opportunities, and the, even the reasons why many of us came to Colorado Springs, which is also land of opportunities. And to whom much has been given, much has been required. So I've succeeded, and I want to pay it forward. Now, the cool thing about my story is that I am black. I am immigrant. I got naturalized here almost six years ago. Those are profound, and I don't want to. I don't want to miss, or not acknowledge the beauty and the magic of that. Not just because, I get to say I am the first. Those things don't matter to me. In fact, I, for being honest, I, I have a pet peeve when leaders start with that. I am the. But what makes that so special is the fact that two young black leaders in the 23-year-olds look at me and said on the, on, the, on the election night last night and said, because someone that looks like us has become mayor, now we feel that the sky is the limit. We can do anything. Man, that helps me go to sleep at night. It helps me get up. That's why that matters. Not because it's a badge of honor I get to wave as an identity politics thing, but it's because of what it would do for the next generation of leaders. And as I walk to my kids' school and see all these young kids, yeah, me familiar. And the number of kids that have been involved in politics this year at such a young age because my family is relatable, that, that's what makes me happy. So that's where the, my profile matters because my, my wife and, you, and I are young, relatively speaking, in our 40s, running for office, which is different, which is another ceiling, if you may, in this city. But the fact that that is now, that's public, and now families see us, and they relate to us. They're having conversations about us in their home. They're talking to their kids about politics because the kids watch TV and they see other kids. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a sweet spot. Mayor-elect Yemi Mobilade, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Yemi Mobilade is the mayor-elect of Colorado Springs. He spoke with KRCC's Andrea Chalfin Wednesday afternoon. He will be sworn in on June 6th. Incidentally, that's the same day voters in Denver will choose their next mayor in a runoff election. 
When we come back, farmers and ranchers across Colorado are closely watching what's happening in Washington, D.C. right now. We'll talk about what's at stake next. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Spring. Grand Junction. Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Colorado's farmers and ranchers are watching a debate unfolding in Washington, D.C. very closely these days. That's because the massive farm bill is up for reauthorization. The bill covers everything from conservation programs and crop insurance to food aid and farmer support. CPR's Washington correspondent, Caitlin Kim, has been looking into how Colorado producers and lawmakers are trying to shape what finally passes. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Chandra. Okay, start us off with how this works. Congress has to pass a new farm bill every five years, but what goes into making that happen? You know, not surprisingly, it is a long and involved process. It starts with lawmakers talking to farmers, you know, ranchers, different grower groups, hunger advocates, you know, anybody that, that's impacted by the farm bill and about what needs to change, what doesn't need to change, what needs to be tweaked, added or taken out. And they get all that information and they bring it back to the Senate and House Agriculture Committees. Now, in theory, both chambers would write their own bill, pass them, and then they'd meet in conference to hash out the differences. But, you know, the other way it can happen is one ch- chamber, you know, likely the House, would pass a bill that goes to the Senate, who then changes the bill and then sends it back to the House, which passes it again. And finally, it goes to the president's desk to become law. And even with all that, it doesn't always go that smoothly. So one important thing, though, to know about this is that Colorado really has a seat at the table. We're actually two seats at the table this mm. time around because we have two members on uh, the Senate and the House Ag Committees. Who are they? Um, Senator Michael Bennett, who has been serving on the Senate Agriculture Committee since he entered that chamber, and Democratic uh, Congresswoman Yadira Carabello. She's a freshman, so um, she's now sitting on the House Agriculture Committee. And it's the first time Colorado has had a member on the Ag Committee in over a decade. The House Ag Committee, sorry. (laughs) Well, I know that's something you heard a lot about when you were reporting in Colorado recently. Let's listen to some of that story. Well, lots of issues that you all brought up that I really want to dive into, um, but we should focus on on the farm bill. Democratic Representative Yadira Carabello is sitting in a wood-paneled conference room at Cicada Farms in Brighton. She's there to hear from dairy farmers, ranchers, small specialty crop growers, larger commodity crop farmers, and everyone in between. As a member of the House Agriculture Committee, Carabello will help craft the farm bill, which will guide food policy for the next five years. She says meetings like this are critical. You know, I think it um, created new priorities for me, and then it also reinforced some of the ones that we were already focusing on. The new priorities? Issues like food education or estate planning for farmers, and, well... Um, like that gentleman said at the in the listening session. I guess my biggest concern is for the 
non-I states to continue to be heard when it comes to farm bill priorities. A lot of the policy is based on the 400 miles around the Mississippi River and not on arid land like we have in Colorado. Um, That was uh, really important for me to hear. There are a lot of members from the Midwest, you know, those I states like Iowa and Indiana, as well as California and the Southeast on the Ag Committees. So Colorado Agriculture Commissioner Kate Greenberg says they can require some extra education. You know, not all lawmakers understand the complexity of our um, environment, our climate, our water situation, certainly our water law, which, which influences our, of course, our policy and our programs. Colorado's senior senator, Michael Bennett, has worked on the last couple of farm bills. He'll tell you, it's not the usual partisan divides that dominate the negotiations, but regional ones. For example, areas in the southeast can get too much water, but Colorado and the west are going through an historic drought. It's been an important obligation of mine, committee hearing after committee hearing after committee hearing, to raise the alarm around that drought and to fight for um, more robust conservation dollars so that we can respond and our farmers and ranchers and other producers, you know, have a fighting chance. Well, good morning. I'm pleased to call this subcommittee meeting on conservation, climate, forestry, and natural resources to order. For this hearing, sitting behind a large wooden desk is Paul Bruchet, a rancher from Kremlin. This is his first time in front of Congress, and he's here to tell senators about his experience with the drought. Our ability to irrigate and operate a successful agriculture business was in jeopardy. At that time, we decided to get involved and make improvements to our ranch to adapt to the changing environment. The Regional Conservation Partnership Program has been instrumental in surviving the last 23 years of ongoing drought. Bruchet's takeaway to senators? make sure there's enough technical staff to help people utilize Farm Bill conservation programs. So if we're going to get projects on the ground that are going to have the kind of meaning to withstand um, adapting to a modern climate, um, it's time to gear up. Thank you. Concerns for Colorado farmers aren't just about managing water, but also managing the land to avoid another dust bowl. That's what the Conservation Reserve Program is supposed to do by paying farmers to take land out of production. Nathan Weathers of Weathers Family Farm says it's especially important in areas like southeastern Colorado. There's ground that shouldn't be farmed, and people know it, and they've been in such a long drought down there, parts of Colorado, that it's just, it's to the point where that ground needs to go back to grass. But right now, there are acre limits, and the rates for Colorado land are much less than other states, say, in the Midwest. Bennett says he's looking forward to making the case for Colorado and the West as negotiations move forward. And I think we're going to see a battle in this farm bill to make sure that we're able to hold on to the gains that we've already made. And that's a battle I look forward to having, partly because I look forward to convincing people on the committee that they have a stake in the success of the American West. And that's really what's at stake here. And Colorado producers are staking part of their futures on how successful Colorado lawmakers are in making that case. That story from CPR's Washington correspondent, Caitlin Kim, who's still with me on the line. Lynn, the producers you talk to, how worried are they that the final bill won't meet their needs? You know, they're worried, Chandra, but they're not overly worried because, you know, they just don't have the time to be, to be perfectly honest. One farmer I spoke with said he knows it's an important bill and he should be paying closer attention. But, you know, there's just not enough time in the day to do that and everything else they need to do to keep their farm going and spend time with family. Um, Nathan Weathers uh, 
is a farmer in Yuma, and he summed it up pretty well. Yes, the farm bill is important and affects everything they do, but farmers are also very good at adapting. At the end of the day, it's my job to take care of what we do here. And, you know, it, it's another thing that's a blessing and a curse for a farmer is our ability to adapt. You know, we're very good at it because we're forced to do it entirely too often. So, it, you know, we'll make work whatever gets passed. Now, that said, they do hope their representatives, you know, groups like the Farm Bureau or Rocky Mountain Farmers Union, you know, the senators, their actual Congress members, are making the case for them to get, you know, everything from strengthening crop insurance to putting more money into crop research or conservation programs to, to making the pricing for meat packers more transparent. It's a long list. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it. At this point, what are the biggest sticking points in the Farm Bill negotiations? You know, in the past years, the sticking point has been the nutrition title of the Farm Bill. That's the Food Aid for Low-Income Families and Individuals. It actually almost scuttled the 2018 Farm Bill. Hmm. The issue is, um, yeah, it's increased work requirements. Now, I will note in the end uh, at, of the 2018 debate, you know, a Republican-controlled Congress and a Republican president eventually signed it into law without the tougher work requirements. But it's coming up again, and um, it's being brought up by a host of Republicans in including House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Uh, but the, the issue this time, though, is it, it's not happening in the debate over the Farm Bill. Rather, Republicans are trying to impose these stricter work requirements as part of a deal uh, to raise the debt limit ceiling. Now, are Colorado lawmakers involved in this fight? You know, they're not central to this fight, but they're not outside of it either. Um, Republican Lauren Boebert was one of the handful was one of a handful of um, Republicans to sign a letter led by Florida Representative Matt Gates that calls for increased work requirements, although that letter didn't actually have a lot of specifics. On the other side, you have representatives like Caraveo, who has a bill to continue pandemic level um, food aid for another year through SNAP, which is, you know, the program formerly known as food stamps, to give people more time to prepare for these lower benefit levels. The De Democrats have continually stressed that there are work requirements already in place to get the aid, and they don't want to see more bureaucracy added to an already cumbersome process. Hmm. What would it mean for farmers and ranchers if Congress can't reach a deal before the bill expires? What happens then? Um, you know, this is a little bit of a gray area. Most people argue that there is some wiggle room and programs will last to the end of the year. But if there's no deal by then, you know, some programs would go away and others would revert back to old laws, some going back to like the 1930s. Now, most lawmakers are optimistic that it will get done by the end of the year. But if it doesn't, you know, they always have the option to extend the current bill. Um, another factor working, though, in Congress's favor for getting this done, it's not a wholesale rewrite of the farm bill. You know, this is going to be this is not sorry, going to be a transformational farm bill. It is really about tweaks, tweaking the farm bill to make it work better for farmers, ranchers, anti-hunger advocates and everyone else. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you, Chandra. That was CPR Washington, D.C. correspondent Caitlin Kim, who joined us to talk about Colorado's stake in the current Farm Bill negotiations. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When a boulder lake was infested with thousands of goldfish, authorities worried they would destroy the ecosystem. All methods of removing them were unpleasant. Then, flocks of migrating white pelicans 
descended upon the lake, gorged on the goldfish, and the problem was over. Spring brings the white pelican to Colorado lakes and reservoirs. It stands four to five feet tall, has a nine-foot wingspan, and a huge orange bill that sports a prominent bump during breeding season. Then there's the pelican's famous large, stretchy pouch it uses as a net to scoop up fish and amphibians. It's a myth that pelicans store food in there. By summertime, you'll find pelicans gathered into squadrons for cooperative fishing. And when Colorado waters freeze over, it's a signal to the pelicans to head for warmer coastal waters. A Colorado postcard from CPR, supported by National Jewish Health. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Generally around this time of year, the nicer weather draws more migrants to the U.S. But in the past week, hundreds more arrived in Denver just before Title 42 expired. That change in federal policy means people seeking asylum must ask for it before they cross the border. Denverites Isaac Vargas talked with a 23-year-old father. He was waiting for bus tickets to his next, next destination at his city-run processing center. I saw a young man with his daughter sitting next to them, and they were both um, eating what looked like, like Cheez-Its type of, of snack. And they were both sitting on the curb, and his name was Kaver Rojas. His daughter was a four-year-old uh, girl. Her name was Samantha. You could see the sense of fatigue, a little bit of confusion maybe. He had just come from El Paso, Texas, where it was incredibly hot. And so he was basking in the sunshine and the weather of, of Denver because he was saying it was much less hot here in Denver as opposed to El Paso. When I asked how his time in El Paso was, he mentioned having to sell candy on the street with his daughter in order to afford the bus ticket that would bring him here to Denver. David was traveling just with his daughter and he left behind another daughter back home in Venezuela and his wife, which he said he would hope that he could bring them over as soon as he was able. Bus tickets here in Denver were free. They just needed to share where they were headed. David was headed to California. He had no friends or family there, but that California was always a place that he had wanted to go to that he had heard about, and he said that California was just the destination from day one, so he was looking for a bus ticket out to the West Coast. There was a sense of optimism in the folks that I spoke to, because many of them, when I spoke to them, were reminiscing on a nine-month-long journey. And to think about all of the places, the people, the countries that they passed through, it was almost like they were in their final destination. and that little sliver of hope was very much felt and heard in the conversations that I had. These were people who had seen so much, but they weren't without strength. They weren't without a way of figuring things out. And I really felt that, especially in my conversation with Gaber and his daughter. He just spoke about it in a way of just needing to figure it out for his family. That was Denverite's Isaac Vargas talking with a recent migrant who arrived just as the Title 42 border policy 
was ending. When we come back from the hood to the ballet stage, it may seem like an unlikely journey, but for one Denverite, it's been affirming and life-changing as he finally hangs up his ballet slippers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There's a surprising place in the Southwest that shows us how we can save water in cities. Vegas is excess, so they figure we're doing everything in excess, including wasting water. But that is just not the case here. On the new episode of Parched from CPR News, see how America's playground is changing to adapt to a drier Colorado River. Find Parched wherever you get podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. There's a popular song from the 90s R&B group, Boys to Men, that's a real tearjerker. How do I say goodbye to what we had? The good It's so hard to say goodbye. Well, that's what the members of a Denver-based ballet company, the Wonderbound Dance Company, are likely singing as they say goodbye to a dancer, or shall I say dancer, who undoubtedly has helped shape the company one plie at a time. I'm talking about principal dancer Damian Patterson. He's saying goodbye and hanging up his ballet slippers this month after 14 years He joins us now to reflect on his creative journey. Damien, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, 14 (laughs) years. I imagine the occasion is a bit bittersweet on both sides. How do you feel as you take this big step? Like, what's racing through your mind these days? Um, What's racing through my mind is, like, just being able to have a break. And it's been... My career is, has been 24 years long, and I just spent 14 of it with Wonderbound. So I've been out here for a long time. So I just can't wait to just chill and not have to get up in the morning and <laughs> and dance and do frappes. <laughs> um, it's, it, you know, it's time. I've had surgery within the last three years, and wow. it's, yeah, it's, it's about time to and I'm I'm happy as I look back over the 24 years I I've done way more than I ever thought that I could do Mm -hmm. Uh, being a professional dancer included like I didn't even think that that was a possibility for me and it just happened so to look back at something so great and to always want to find a dance home and found a dance home dance with Wonderbound for 14 years and they're finally opening their forever home during my last performance. So it's like everything's, you know, coming full circle. And it is, it's a, it's a good farewell. Now, how would you say Denver and Colorado's dance scene, specifically the ballet scene, has evolved over these years since you've been here? Um, I think, I think it's great because when I first joined, when I first came to Colorado, I was dancing for Cleo Parker Robinson Dance Ensemble. And I'm more like 
that's more modern based. Mm. Um, we did do contemporary works there as mm -hmm. well, but I like I my first job was in a ballet company, so like I the the structure of a ballet company and then the structure of or the freedom of a modern dance company um, is kind of sort of where my technique lives mm -hmm. and Wonderbound happened to be the place that allow all of that to come to the forefront and not just focus on one area of discipline at a time. Like now, I can, when when you, know, you started, it was actually called Ballet Nouveau Colorado. Yes, yes. And what drew me to them was that they, they danced in regular clothes. There were no leotards and tights and tutus. Um, and that is what, and it, and it allowed me to just feel like a real human being instead of being something or someone that is different than the people sitting in the audience. I feel like we can tell stories better when the people sitting in the audience can see us as human beings and not as, oh, I'm ethereal and thin and I have on this really <laughs> tiny costume, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, like you said, imagining what you look like when you're out and about. So it kind of makes right. that connection. Yeah. So when I read about Wonderbound, this is what I read. It's a contemporary ballet company located in Denver, Colorado, that lives at the convergence of tradition and innovation, vulnerability mm -hmm. and courage, and intimacy and openness. And Wonderbound is committed to the development and sharing of collaborative artistic experiences. Wow, what a big description. Yes, <laughs> and we do all of that all the time. <laughs> now, as you alluded to, I read up on you and your background, and it's absolutely fascinating. Yes. In 1999, you won a scholarship to study at the prestigious Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater in New York, which is, of course, yes. the famous African-American dance company and in that year you took a bus to Tennessee and won an audition to become an apprentice with Ballet Memphis and you spent yes. six seasons there so how did all that end up turning into being in Colorado well <laughs> after after my six seasons with Ballet Memphis um, I decided that it was time for me to go and I actually went back to New York an audition for Ailey. I did not make it, but I ended up going back to Baltimore and freelancing and um, teaching the inner city kids um, for two and a half years and just like gigging around the city. So that's how like I came back to Baltimore. And then from Baltimore, my teacher sent me uh, to the it's called the IABD um, conference. It's where I met Cleo and I auditioned for Cleo there. And she sent me an invitation to come to Denver. I ended up coming to Denver two weeks after that conference and ended up dancing for Cleo for a year, one season and four months. And in, within that time, two of the dancers from Ballet Nouveau Colorado came to one of the performances that I did when I first got here. Mm. Um, and they were like, there's a guy from Ballet Memphis. His name is Damien. He's great. <laughs> and they go back and they tell Don and Garrett, and they're like, we know Damien. 
And so they found out that I was here in Denver and we talked a little bit. They ended up having a spot and I went and auditioned for them, hung out with the company for about a week. It was just like a seamless transition from Cleo's into Ballet Nouveau, Colorado. Mm. So... Well, obviously a good fit for you to stay 14 years. And yeah. my guess is that when you were a little black boy growing up in a tough Baltimore inner city neighborhood, you probably never imagined you'd become a professional ballet dancer, let alone here in Colorado. What drew me to dance was my uncle was a performer. Like he um, belonged to this community theater. It's like the oldest black theater in the nation called the Arena Playhouse. And they had a youth theater program. And my uncle was actually, you know, saved from a life of crime um, but through this program. And he ended up putting me in the program later on. And I would go and see him as a little kid. My mother would take me to see him, you know, do plays and things of that nature. When I saw him on stage, he was like the first superstar. I was in awe of him, like <laughs> always. I was like this is amazing but I never knew that I would ever end up up there because I was too shy um but the <laughs> youth theater uh the youth theater summer program had a dance class and the first dance class I was put in it was tap class and I enjoyed it but I got kicked out because I didn't have uh, no one bought me tap shoes so <laughs> um so that was a little sad, but then there was another like movement class where there was a modern dance teacher. And when she came in, I just, I was like, I, I don't think she's human. And that's when something in me just clicked. And I didn't care what anyone, um, what anyone thought. I just, I just wanted to try when she was teaching. Like I just showed up. I never really thought that I would ever become a professional dancer. Now, being a Black man in ballet definitely feels like it's got to be a unique yeah. experience. Yeah. What has that been like for you? Yeah, it's, it's a very unique experience because I feel like for, from my experience, I'm always, I, I, I'm always expected to do something or be something, always. And I always feel like I had to be on my A game, no matter what. There's no time to... There's no time to sleep when it comes down to delivering what you need to deliver. Because in the beginning, I felt like I had to prove that I should be in the room. Mm. And and that's something that's something that was really hard about the ballet world for me was no matter no matter how hard you work, there's always going to be someone who thinks they're better than you or that you shouldn't be in the room. And I think that's why I work as hard as I do, because no one's going to deny me space in this world and that's something that I that's something that I had to really really stick to in the ballet world because it could be it could be a little rough sometimes and people don't know what to say out their mouths around you and you have to and because and I'm from the hood so <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I really had to learn how to play this game and understand that your your hard work will pay off. It always has for me. And what about Colorado? How has Colorado 
responded to you and how has that evolved over the years you 14 years right have you seen an evolution of people's reactions to you I have seen an evolution of people's uh, reaction to me I feel like in Colorado like I've been I've been able to just grow as an artist and just make my own choices as an artist and the outpour of love from from everyone who's been coming to the show has been amazing. People have been walking up to me and saying, I've been watching you for 10 years. And like, usually my family can't make it to performances and stuff like that. So I'm usually just performing for who's ever in the audience. So I never really, I never really think about people actually loving me and coming to see me when I go on stage, I never think about that. But the the love for my art and my artistry that I'm just realizing, it's a lot to take in because I don't, because I work so hard. I don't think that it just never crossed my mind that people actually love to see me do what I do. And um, Colorado is like definitely a place that like has been showing me that I'm an artist and there are, there are patrons who come specifically to see me and they miss me when I'm gone they miss me when I'm not on stage they wait for me to come back and it's like it's a beautiful experience to to know that there are people out in the audience who support you and your artistry it's been a blessing to have that type of support from Colorado and I will be forever grateful and thankful for the love and respect and the support the Colorado dance community has for me and has showed me and the past 14 years. So what are your thoughts about diversity in the arts here in Colorado? How has it grown and where do you see room for improvement? It has grown. There are a lot of great dancers out here, a lot of great dancers. Um, I would like to see someone who looks like me at Colorado Ballet, but in my 15 years of being here, I have not. And that's something that should change in the, in the future. Luckily, I'm with Wonderbound, um, I represent the we all can dance here. And because I spent 14 years with them is my way of letting other kids who look like me and who want to do this, there's a spot for you. There's a place for you. And that's something that is really, really hard, especially after dealing with COVID. A lot of dancers just don't want to do it anymore. And a lot of places already have their quota of um, dancers of color. And it's just a really tough situation where I, all I can do is be the best me that I can possibly be and, and, and let the other dancers of color know that there's a place out here for us. And, and, and that's just basically it. Sounds like you're <laughs> issuing a challenge. No, not a challenge, but to see everyone everywhere is the experience that the dance community should present to the audience here. I think every company should have everyone in it. They should, you know, make the effort, raise them, go find them, um, teach them, you know, so. When you think of ballet, most people think of New York and San Francisco, mm -hmm. even places like Boston, but what made you stay in Colorado so long? I stayed because I, can do this and and this is where my type of art is seen i felt free when i came to colorado like i just felt like 
I could just be myself here. I, and I think that this was the first place that I had been where I was, you know, openly gay. Like I came here when I was 27 years old. And like when I was in Memphis, I wasn't in a closet or anything, but like, I feel like this is the place that I really started to live my life and really become Damian Patterson to become the best me that I can be. And I feel like Colorado has allowed me to become that and gave me the space to do that. And I am, I became who I am. And I think that that's why, and that takes some time. <laughs> so I think that's why I've been here for the 14 years, well, 15 years. Well, I have to ask, what's next for Damian Patterson? Are you staying in Colorado? I'll stay in Colorado for a little while. I am going to take a much needed break. See, I'm going to see families, I'm going to see some friends. I am going to see Beyonce in New Orleans. Ooh, ooh, uh, my hometown. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. I'll be seeing her uh, September the 27th, her last performance. Yeah, I'm really excited. That's my um, retirement gift to myself. I've never seen her in concert. And with my first paycheck, I bought I bought the Destiny's Child CD, The Writings on the Wall. <laughs> so, love it, love it. so, so you're getting uh, information as you retire. Right, exactly, exactly. So, you know, I don't know 42 maybe we'll, years old. Maybe we'll find you in one of her videos. Hey, you <laughs> never know. You. <laughs> right, you never know. Are you listening, you know. Beyonce? You're <laughs> right. dancer in the wings. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, yeah. Damien, we here at Colorado Matters wish you well on your future endeavors be it with or without Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, well, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That was veteran ballet dancer Damian Patterson, a principal dancer with Wonderbout. He's departing the Denver-based ballet company after 14 years following the company's production of The Sandman at its new studio and performance facility in Denver's historic Park Hill community. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.